Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this, the Legends podcast with Sarah Faruya from Sarah Faruya Coaching. Um, I believe that everybody has stories and I want to tell them and there are many, many ways to lead a life. And today I have my amazing friend, Susanna Streeter here. Hi, Susanna. Hello. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. So we're recording this on December the 21st, uh, 2020. We're in month 10. Point five of the coronavirus pandemic and the UK where Susanna's calling in from has just gone into tier four in some areas and tier three lockdowns so there's a little bit of a, a dark cloud over some parts of the UK today but not between us because it's just such a delight to be speaking to you today. Never it's always so lovely to talk to you and it's great to be part of this podcast Thanks. series as well very exciting you certainly brighten up my day. All right, so about Susanna, she's a highly experienced broadcaster and financial commentator who has anchored flagship business news programs on TV and radio and hosts major, major summits, conferences and events around the world. Prior to covering an international news agenda, Susanna was a regular face on BBC One Breakfast, reported live from across the UK. She also reported for the Consumer Affairs Programme Working Lunch and the BBC Budget Programme. Between 1997 and 2007, Susanna served in the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, joining 7644 Squadron, a media operations unit, where she rose to the rank of squadron leader. So, welcome, 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 my squad leader. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so, just uh, quickly going back to that uh, BBC One breakfast, a very quick anecdote for you here, Susanna, which is that um, when my husband and I got married in 2006, my husband went downstairs to make his breakfast, put the television on, and suddenly shouted up, Sarah, Sarah, Susanna's on the television interviewing Justin Timberlake. <laughs> and you were five months pregnant, and he was so thrilled. And um, I'm really happy that you gave him that experience to be a little star. Oh, that was such a roller coaster day that day I mean it wasn't just Justin Timberlake he came at right at the end of the day I mean I was <laughs> interviewing before him I'd been up about six I'd been up to be on air at 6am so up about 4am um, I think I was doing something about energy bills and then I hot-footed it down to London to interview Philip Green the boss of the Arcadia Empire 
And actually, you know, the last couple of weeks, I've been reporting on how that empire has collapsed. And then after that, you know, Justin Timberlake was a bit of an anecdote right at the end of the day, squeezed in between all those different interviews. But it was a real privilege uh, to interview him, as it was, you know, so many different kind of pop stars or politicians or uh, business men and women that I interviewed at breakfast. But at breakfast, it was quite funny because even though I was the business reporter, I literally got sent to do pretty much anything from Justin Timberlake to Jennifer Aniston on the red carpet to then water bowls in Northumbria <laughs> another day. So it was very varied, I can tell you. Well, I'm so pleased that my husband got to see you talking to Justin Timberlake and not waterfalls on that day. <laughs> he was absolutely thrilled. And then you rocked up at our wedding as well. So, you know, it's quite starstruck. So let's get into it. So why don't you tell me a bit about your background, your ancestry, your upbringing and your childhood? So I was born in Wiltshire, uh, southwest of uh, the UK, in a very rural setting. I went to a village school, have two sisters, my mum and dad, and we lived a kind of a, on the edge of a village overlooking fields. And we went to the village school, which was tiny, about 24 pupils in the entire school. I had five or six people in my year. So it was a, a very kind of you know, intimate setting. You knew everybody in the village. We were allowed to kind of roam around the fields. And um, interestingly, one of the memories I had just popped up this week about how we used to do country dancing as part of our curriculum, um, you know, an hour of do do and <laughs> it was very rural. Yeah. Um, but in a way, because it was so small, you did also have quite a lot of freedom yeah. to just kind of roam, which mm. I think is great when you're, you know, when you're a child. Mm. And then when I was 11, I moved to the outskirts of Bath um which was a much better place to be a teenager because we could get the bus in with all our friends and go and experience the bath nightlife probably at too young an age but <laughs> but it was it was a great place to be and um, I'm a very close-knit family so my two sisters one's three years younger than me one's two years older than me I'm bang smack in the middle all born in the same month and I think, you know, we, we've got a really, we're really close knit, but we did used to argue a lot when we were kids, definitely, you know, fierce rows, but then you'd quickly get over it. And we're all kind of really best of friends now. So um, yeah, after Bath and my uh, time at my comprehensive school, I then went to university and went into journalism. Amazing, amazing. So what were you like as a child, um, Susanna? What were you like? I mean, you were the middle child. What influence do you think that had on you? And what were you like? What were your interests? I was quite determined and keen to make my own mark. I think, you know, perhaps it's a middle child thing. I don't know. You kind of <laughs> want to assert where you are in the yeah. family. Um, and I think I was pretty adventurous. I did get very much like drama and dancing and um, was really into performing, I think, from quite a young age. We used to hold these uh, performances out on the grass with all the neighbours and get all the parents to watch. And then I joined, um, I was in the ballet club, ballet dance school. And then when I moved to near Bath, I joined a, a drama club which had links into TV companies. And so then I was able to do amateur dramatics on a semi-professional scale, actually moving into children's TV drama. And that was really great fun. And I mixed with um, people from right across the city of Bristol as well. And was in a few shows like Casualty, which was a kind of a hospital drama and uh, a children's TV drama as well. So that was really great fun and definitely kind of widened my horizons and broadened my horizons about what I could possibly do next. 
Mm-hmm. So you were a determined child. What were you? Were you kind of sandwiched between your two sisters? What were they like? Like, was there a shy one, and then the kind of the cute one, the cool one? What? <laughs> so well, my sister always used to wear. Um, she was quite into the Cure and used to wear DM boots and was very trendy. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I couldn't do that, so I tried to do something else. I was probably quite quite annoying. I used to well, obviously want to do what she did, and she used to go to bars and pubs first obviously because she was older and I was desperate to do that and then she went to university and then I was desperate to go to university and um then Judy my younger sister and I Juliet we we then went on holiday together and then we kind of bonded a, a lot more and used to hang out together so um you know it's really difficult to know exactly what you were like yeah. I you know had a wide group of friends we weren't too good but we weren't too naughty yeah. <laughs> we were kind of Tread that fine line in between. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I when I kind of interview people who are maybe over 40, um, we often talk about how free our childhoods were and how much we were outdoors and things like that. So I always like to like note that. But you've just brought up the thing of like how young we were when we started going out. And Absolutely. We were now, actually you know I have a 14-year-old and I have an 11 year old and a six-year-old. And I live in a city and it's a different experience for them growing up. However, I do really try and allow them to, well, we live where we live in Bristol. We've had an edge of woods all the way around. So we try and go into the woods as much as possible. And I let my 14 year old go off on his bike as much as he can on his own. And I know that there are some parents who are really concerned about them going out and riding their bikes, but they need that independence because if they don't get that independence, they can never really, when they get to a point in the future where you have to, make it up as you go along you don't have that experience to do that so just an anecdote he he was meant to be cycling to my parents house which is around I don't know 20 kilometers away and my husband lost him but he managed to get there he didn't know where he was going but asking 17 people on the way finding his way without a map or a phone or anything he did it but I think if I hadn't allowed him to go out on his own before for a lot the last couple of years he probably wouldn't have had the nouse to get on his bike and find find where it's meant to be we had a few hours of slight panic (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that's that's a really interesting story actually and we think about the first time I went to a club I was 15 and I just look like my friend's daughters and sons who were like similar age and it it just seems a little bit different now I suppose every generation would you know what in our day (laughs) yeah well uh, and I and you worry about your children going out to nightclubs and bars because of However, I think as long as you kind of instill the some good grounding and, and give them a bit of allowance, a bit of freedom, then they're not going to go so far and be really radical when they're older. But it is quite sad with lockdowns. My son has now turned his bedroom into a kind of disco. <laughs> He's got these flashing lights and connects with his friends through the Xbox and the PlayStation, which has actually been a complete godsend because I just don't know how we would have coped because we didn't have this level of technology. We didn't have this ability to connect in a room, you know, the multiplayer format where you're able to link up with friends all the way around the world. He links up with friends in London. My other son links up with friends in Spain and they all play together of an evening. Now, back when we were kids, what would we have done? We'd been literally shutting our our houses without any outdoor um, activity or able to meet our friends at all. So in one way, I feel as though the way that society has moved is limiting because we don't allow them to roam so much, but in a way they're roaming virtually even more than we did. 
So it's really fascinating. I love that, Susanna. I love that really optimistic, but just very straightforward approach, which is like every generation has its own different ways of doing the world, right? Yeah, but don't get me wrong. We are still worried about screen use and how much time they spend on screens and whether they could end up being addicted. But I think as far as during the pandemic, we're facing fresh lockdowns and we, you know, we could be, and they could be kept off school for months again, but at least I think they can have some kind of social interaction. And that is just so important. I think for their mental health, for just family harmony, although don't get me wrong, it's not always harmonious when you're trying to get them off the devices at the end of the day. So it is, it is tricky, but I think from, I suppose from my experience growing up, if you're allowed to have more freedom, you're just happier. So you do need to give them that freedom and you need to, it is a worry and there are dangers, but when they're adults, we have all these dangers to deal with anyway, don't we? So they've got to allow, give them a bit of time to bit by bit approach those dangers, I think. Yeah, very much so. And I'm just thinking, I wonder how much our phone bills would have been when we were teenagers. <laughs> Yeah, but we would have been fighting over the landline. <laughs> it's my turn now. Yeah. Stretchy twirly cord like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, dear. So when did you start? What did you study for A-levels? I did uh, French, history and English. In fact, I also did um, an AIS economics um, A-level and I was advised to concentrate on three, not bother with the half which now I regret. It's funny, I should have just stuck at it because I really, and now economics is a massive part of my job and it has been for the past 15, 20 years. And it's fascinating yeah. um, about, you know, how money makes the, the world go round and money supply and, and, um, and just how different economies and political systems, you know, intertwine and um, how it affects business and the stock market. And it, it's funny how I, was interested in it back then and it's kind of come full circle and now I'm an investment analyst looking at that pretty much day to day um, but I, I think because I had the I was really interested in performing in amateur dramatics I, I did still just as I went to university I'd only just left kind of acting behind and thought no, I want to look at just want to try something else and then broadcasting was a way of bringing together my interest in politics and economics and um, performing because I thought well I could go and be a broadcast journalist and present the news so that was a kind of middle way that I thought would bring all the different elements of what I like to do together and certainly that's what I did then for the next after I graduated um, for the next uh, 15 or so years but another key crucial part of um, what I chose to do was French and actually as I was growing up um, in my studies I don't think French was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't an A-lister in French. However, I did do a French exchange when I was 13. And um, the town that I lived closest to, Cainsham, was twinned with Libourne. So it's very close to Bristol and Bordeaux. And I met this girl called Vanessa and she was just fantastic. And her family were fantastic. And I completely fell in love with them in France and that whole Aquitaine region. And so I spent my next few summers um, there really hanging out with Vanessa at the beach speaking French meeting French people going to French nightclubs and um, that really did then change the direction of my life because then I thought no I definitely want to do French at university and I, I did a French degree spent a year in France and then I, in a way 
subsequently in journalism, I didn't use French that much, but every single holiday I've, I've spent it in France. And actually my love of France started at a really young age when my parents, fed up with the rain in England, used to take us camping in the south of France when we were kids. And so that's where my love of France really did grow. I mean, one year we didn't have much money, so we couldn't really afford to take the car over on the ferry. So we just hitched hike. We all got little rucksacks on our backs, our three girls. I think we were five, eight and 10 at the time. My mum and dad caught the bus down to the ferry, got on as foot passengers, came off the other end, hitched hiked a bit, went on buses everywhere, pitched our tents and had an amazing holiday. Um, so I think, you know, my get up and go as well has been formed since those years when my parents used to take us take us camping and and just set up wherever we wanted to really amazing love that and I I always imagine I always think of you as being very very strongly connected to France and you in fact uh, Les Petits Anglais is one of your little um nicknames isn't it that your family yes has? Les Petits Anglais yeah yes yeah. It's actually after a French film of some naughty schoolgirls, but um, I kind of twisted it around a little bit. Um, and just to show that we've been having fun in France. I mean, my family, we love going there. I'm trying to teach the kids French. Some of the middle one's a bit more resistant, but the other two are really keen to learn and they can really see the benefits. My older son is now really into surfing. In fact, I decided to learn how to surf before I was 40 because I decided that I needed to go into the water with the kids. And I needed to be out at the bat line with them. So that I wouldn't be so nervous standing at the beach, you know, on the beach looking out. So that's what I do with them. I go surfing in the summer with them in France and it's brilliant. I love it. And so that's, um, that's certainly kept their interest in, in French to some extent, because they want to make sure that they can chat with the other surfers when they're out there. Now, are you still friends with Vanessa and her family? So I'm very good friends with Vanessa and her family. Very sadly, Vanessa has moved to Montreal in Canada and I have not yet been able to go and see her. Mm -hmm. um, but I am still really in contact with her. Um, and I'm very much in contact with her brother and her mom. In fact, her brother's daughter was my bridesmaid and then my daughter was his bridesmaid. And I see uh, Vanessa's mum all the time. She's like my French French mum, effectively. Uh -huh. So, you know, a couple of times a year, I'm over there at their house, having a great time, always in contact with them, you know, on social media. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still very close to them. And that's great because, you know, that was a relationship formed so many years ago. Um, and it just shows how, you know, taking that leap, it was quite hard as a teenager to go and stay with a family you don't know and speak a different language for two weeks. Um, but you, if you do it, yeah. you can have such great rewards at the end of it. It's just that taking that leap of faith and jumping into something you don't you feel concerned about. But you've just got to do it because if you don't, you miss out on what could be such a rich experience, which it did prove to be. Love it. You know, it's interesting you should have said about doing AS economics. I did AS French and abandoned it after one year because same reason I was doing, I think, biology, chemistry and maths. <laughs> why though and I was like desperate to hold on to something from the kind of art side and yeah it didn't work <laughs> I know and it's funny isn't it because I think part of the schools want to up their grades and make sure that you get as much as you can in the A-levels you do take but actually having that broader curriculum you know and I regret as well not doing German but you can't do everything can you no, you I mean you have to make some kind of choice and then yeah. actually I did love 
speaking German as well. It's just that my love of France overtook because I've met this French family and they were just so great. My husband's learning Russian at the moment, which is interesting. Wow, that is impressive. I know, well, anyway, we've got a Russian friend, so there you go. So, um, so where did you, so you, you mentioned briefly about kind of thinking about broadcasting and journalism and marrying these, these different interests together. But I wonder, so if I'm not mistaken, I'm pulling out all my 30 year old knowledge. You did society and government and French, is that right? Yeah, so, so society and government is a, was a combination of looking at how um, societies evolved, um, political systems. So it was very much, it was, and, and economic. So it was, it was very much a combination of all three. Yeah. And, um, and French, so, um, and then in French, you learn all about the economy and society and history at, at the same time as, as the language. So it was, it was definite combination. And I think that was a really good grounding actually for um, a career in journalism uh, going, on, going on from that. And I don't really remember, I spent quite a lot of time beavering away at the, at the Sun newspaper at Aston University. Um, not the Sun, the Sun, yeah. but the Sun, Aston University yeah, newspaper. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a break-in, so I was went down to be the reporter of the break-in at the student flat. <laughs> Got quite a few bylines and did some work experience at Radio WM as well, where I actually spent most of my time, sadly, just wrapping up presents for the, <laughs> for the guest show winners. Um, but it kind of got my foot in the door yeah. and then I took my CV by hand around radio stations around Bristol, including um, uh, a, an organization that did the eye in the sky traffic reporting around um, around the Southwest. So um, I had to kind of report on the traffic news and once went up and into the plane and uh, did the reporting from the sky. Um, so I, I was pretty determined to, to get that job in broadcasting. And then I just took baby steps really from local radio to local TV to regional TV to BBC Three, which was a new kind of youth channel on the BBC. So I set up, I was one of the reporters and presenters of their new news programme and their 60 second bulletin. And then from that, I moved to uh, breakfast and got a job there where I was for about five or six years before I moved on to doing much more core business news uh, for the BBC News Channel and the BBC World Service. Wow. Okay. So that was a really brief whiz through your, uh, your, yeah, it was very, that is quite brief, but that was kind of the trajectory yeah, of, of what I was doing, but it took, I think this is the thing when you, people say, Oh, how do I get into journalism? Well, it's baby steps all yeah. the way because yeah. I remember feeling just frustrated that, you know, I was doing the eye in the sky traffic reporting, but I really wanted to be the presenter on sky news, but obviously you can't because you don't have the experience and you really have to be in it for the long haul and recognize that every little step you take helps build up your knowledge, build up your confidence, build up your ability to cope in situations completely out of your control. And you really need that for live broadcasting. You really need that grounding of what will happen if it all goes wrong. Well, if everything goes wrong at every step of the way, which it often does is in live broadcasting. By the time you get to a big audience, it doesn't phase you so much. And, you know, all the different rules and, um, you know, uh, reporting as far as court cases are concerned, they're very intricate and very important. So you need to make sure you get the groundwork right from the get-go and you have to take baby steps. You can't whiz through. It, yeah. in, if you do, it's crash and burn time, I think. 
interesting and I mean that's just such great life advice as well Susanna and you know I, I just want to kind of whiz back to university which is where we met 30 years ago we were we were um, met in our first week at university as you were living with one of my friends who I went to school with and um I mean, we had a pretty wild ride there, didn't we? Uh, we won't go any. I would say that we definitely made the most of our university years. Yes. <laughs> yes, we definitely. As in, we went out every single night during the first year, bar yeah. one, I think, <laughs> including the entire exam period. Correct. <laughs> and we were legendary, and we had a little gang called the Birds. And you know, we won't go into too many details. But what I can say is, we did, we we did, uh, we did have a great deal of incredible fun. And yes, and do you know what? I was thinking about our birds group. What what really struck me, I came from a family of, you know, three girls and nobody held us back. Nobody said, oh, you're a woman. Well, obviously, no. I just, my house was a female house. I mean, my dad was definitely in the minority. Even the cat was female, Tabitha. So it was very female dominant. And then I went to university in, in Birmingham and suddenly you come across big groups of of. Uh, blokes say from the rugby club and the football club who called themselves the stags and the cobras and were actually at that time 1991 there was a bit of misogyny around I definitely would say yeah, and I'm sure you probably would agree it. yeah and so we were like what are what are these cobras and stags who are they we can be the birds so we got our own athletics tops made with birds on the back and used to go out out as they did in a huge group of women to counteract their huge groups of very dominant men on campus yeah and um it was very empowering wasn't it i mean it really was and actually um it it way so way before the kind of whole me too movement we were already thinking come on we're not going to put up with this dominance and telling us how we should behave and what we should do we are strong women way before the spice girls <laughs> yeah exactly way before the spice girls and they or any were, kind i mean you know that's quite you know i'm, I'm not that, that makes it sound really frivolous because obviously the spice because you know but all of these different kind of movements that they have been um i think we really were feeling it right back in the early 90s that actually it's not okay to be dismissive and to say all right bird you know in a in a very kind of dismissive way we were like okay yeah I'm I am a bird and I'm going to be proud of being a bird and you're not going to take that away from me and that's I'm going to own it so you can't it can't be an insult anymore so I definitely think we earned we <laughs> we owned the birds uh, for, the, for a long time and in fact the birds as a group of friends has endured I would say over the past three decades hasn't it so we're still very close-knit and that bird network is strong yeah I feel very warm-hearted now just got goosebumps talk thinking about that but back to you Susanna so you were like this powerhouse at university even in the first year I can remember like I went to aerobics once but you would go every week we'd go out we'd be playing out party part we didn't use party as a verb back then so I'm going to try not to now we would go out and we would have parties and we would be drinking till the small hours and then you'd be up every morning seven o'clock either swimming or aerobics or something like that and I would just be like wow this woman is amazing <laughs> how did you do it I don't know I I just get up and just get up get up and get, get up and go yeah um I, I think if I've got something in my head that I'm going to do I do it yeah I, I don't I don't 
have an excuse. Yeah, I, 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 and in fact, part of my, um, I realized, I've realized over the years, I, I can be, um, it, when people let me down, I do feel a bit, I just feel, well, why have they just suddenly not done that? I mean, for me, letting down somebody or not doing something you say you're going to do, I just, I just very rarely do it unless I'm really conked out with an illness or something has come up that I absolutely can't do. I mean, when you, I don't want to go out for the evening and I've said I'll go out, I'll go out because I've said I'll go out. Or if I've committed to a class, I'll go to the class. Or if I've made some other kind of commitment, I'll keep it because I just think it's, I don't know, maybe I have a high standard or I just find it rude to not do that. I don't know, really know where that comes from. I must, I must be honest. Uh, I suppose my parents got up every single morning and went to work. Both of them, my mum worked as a teacher. My dad works as an accountant. And every morning without fail, they'll be up and out the door. And, you know, sometimes the house was in a bit of chaos with three children trying to get ready as well and find their boots and shoes and everything. But we always got to school on time in a slightly haphazard way, but we got there and my mum and dad were always got to work. We didn't, there were, there wasn't any time for slacking. And I suppose I've kind of kept that in my head that you just got to get up and get on with it. Do you think you've um, eased off on that at all now, Susanna, as you kind of got older a bit well, and realised? I think that um, oh. you, what you realise is you can't do everything. You know, you, you literally can't have everything. You can't have a family, have a social life, have a career, have a job, be d- doing lots of global travel. So I made a decision um, earlier this year. In fact, just as the pandemic hit, there was a job that came up in Bristol that I'd that didn't come up very often as a senior investment analyst at um, investment firm Hargreaves Lansdowne, um, which is a really great um, firm, which began in Bristol and is the UK's largest investment platform. And the job as a, an analyst, um, I've always been very interested in it because I interviewed many um, financial analysts and markets analysts in my job as a as an anchor, BBC anchor. And I always thought that's a really fascinating job, being able to concentrate fully on what these companies are doing, um, listed on stock markets around the world and what um, central bank policy, for example, means. Um, and the thing is, I didn't, I knew that if I made that leap, it would have to be to a full-time job in London. And I love living in the Southwest of England. Yeah. So that just didn't work. Working part-time as a presenter in London did work. So that's why I stayed where I was. However, this job came up in Bristol, full-time investment analyst, but it meant it was on my doorstep and I just could not refuse that. And also it's meant that I can spend much more time at home with the family. I can have more free time at a weekend rather than traveling back from London after a late shift on Friday. And it's definitely helped the work-life balance. And so it also means as well that I can still do global conferences without feeling as though I'm going away far too much away from the family. So you can't, you know, you can't have, or you can't be an international broadcaster, live in the place that you want to live, um, you know, be an an analyst and, and then do all this global travel. It's just simply not possible. So, you know, you have to kind of pick and choose where you want to put your energies and time. And so this is what I've chosen right now, and I'm really enjoying it. 
Wonderful. So I want to kind of rewind then just to just after you graduated from university. So you went on, you went down to Bristol again. You also started up with the RAF around this time, if I'm not mistaken, or did that start at university? And, you know, no, no it didn't start. Well, no, it didn't start at university, although I was interested in joining the officer training corps of the army, but there was only one in Birmingham. And I think, Sarah, you just kept me too busy going to all those parties. I didn't have time. I didn't have time. <laughs> But then what happened was, as I first got my first job in uh, broadcasting at a local radio station back in Wiltshire, near where I was born, I went to do a, a story on Partnership for Peace. And it was um, the Royal Air Force partnering up with air forces from um, the Eastern Bloc. So, you know, Hungary, for example. And um, it was, I, I was really struck by it. And I thought, this is incredible, you know, after the Cold War, the Second World War, the Cold War, we are in, involved in these partnership for peace um, ties with different countries to try and maintain peace around Europe. And I thought I really want to be part of this. And then that week, I also saw an advert for um, a reserve squadron as an air traffic controller. And I just thought, you know, lo local radio, it's not really giving me the global travel that I, I thought that I'd, I'd get in my 20s. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of stuck around the one patch let's join so I joined and um, then I told somebody at the base where I was reporting on quite regularly that I joined and they said look you don't want to join that squadron with your media expertise you want to join 7644 squadron which I did went to office training um, college in uh, Cranwell in Lincolnshire did a lot of remote training over the course of a year and then graduated as a pilot officer so uh, for the next eight to nine years, spent a lot of my holiday time, my weekend time um, in that squadron, traveling around the world, getting called up to go to different places with the combat camera team. And I trained, um, I helped set up the combat camera team. So because I was a video journalist, I was able you know, to show people how to use the camera um, and go and shoot footage of the troops in various different um, trouble spots around the world. So it was a fantastic experience over nine years, but I definitely did shoehorn that in with um, my broadcasting career and actually working with ITV when I worked at ITV in particular, they were really good at allowing me time off to go and pursue that, that element of my, of my career at the same time as then coming back and being a journalist as well. However, I had to draw that to a close when I had children because you couldn't be a journalist and a part-time uh, squadron leader and a mother. So again, that was when I had to close down one chapter and, and just stick with two, the two other chapters going forward. One thing I note about you, Susanna, is that you and your partner, husband Paul, have such a strong relationship and just have worked this, this really incredible kind of, I don't know if I'd exactly call it balance, but proportioning your lives out and who's the parent who spends the most time in the in the home and of course you were coming backwards and forwards from London all the time you had your own flat in London but first how did you meet Paul? Actually it was through a journalist and it was through a photojournalist friend of ours called Dave who was working at a news agency where I was working at getting work experience mm -hmm. and Paul was his good friend as well so we very much met via Dave who's an absolute star and a legend in his own right in fact he definitely deserves to be on this series, I can tell you. <laughs> he's introduced. So he's now, he's uh, photographed everybody from, you know, 
you know, George W. Bush to, well, I, I mean, he, the number of people he's photographed and his portraits are fantastic. And now he concentrates on National Geographic. But Dave comes over from Canada to visit us uh, very frequently. And he's now um, my uh, daughter's godfather. So um, he very much got us together, him and his wife, Naomi, and they are, they are legends. So yes, and Paul has, he's such a, a rock and, you know, don't get me wrong, it's, it can be quite difficult to work out that balance as in many relationships, you know, who's doing what in the home, who's doing what in their careers, how do you get that, strike that right balance, right balance, and there are difficult conversations sometimes, like in any relationship about how you get it right, but I think we have worked really hard to get it right and make sure that we have lots of fun as well. Yeah, and you definitely do have lots of fun. And, you know, having come to your party last year, continue to have these incredible parties and just have a lot of fun and just a great communication style. And I, I don't know, I, 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 I like and admire you as a couple, if you don't mind me saying, I, I, think, I think it's really marvellous. Um, and also, I just think, you know, you had your apartment or your flat in London really close to Shepherd's, was it close to Shepherd's Bush? Yeah. BBC used to be. And then you also had your, you, you also, of course, have had a few homes that you've bought in Bristol, having just recently bought that beautiful big uh, house that you've got there now. Um, and I don't mean to, to, to make that sound gauche or anything like that. I mean, it's just a very lovely old fashioned house that you've done out so beautifully. Do you know what? I, one thing I really regret is that my granddad hasn't been able to come to this house because when he came back to Bristol after the Second World War, he, him and his brother, they pulled a handcart around the streets of Bristol. They didn't have, you know, a vehicle to get their building business get going again. And he worked with master plasterers and, you know, did all these lovely ornate ceilings. And now I've got a lovely ornate ceiling in my house. And I do just think it would have been so lovely to, for my granddad to see that, you know, his hard work meant that my mum went to university, went to teacher training college. And then her hard work meant that I worked hard and I achieved. And, you know, there's a kind of knock on effect through the generations. And he would have loved to have come for dinner here. He would have loved it. But, you know, in a couple of generations, you know, you can, it's hard grafts, you know, and I know how, how difficult it must have been for um, my granddad and my grandma after the Second World War, after he didn't see my mum for five years. She was born in the middle of the war and it took him a long time to come back, having gone all the way to, to Malta via, and then all the way up through Italy. It must have been so tough to come back and, you know, get to know your daughter again, restart your life, try and get your, your job back on track, try and build up your business once more, self-employed. And they and in his garden, he kept that cart, Fletcher and Sons. And it was a real reminder of just, you know, how hard it was. And you kind of forget, you, fight, you forget just, you know, just how tough it must have been. And, you know, we've got the pandemic now and it's really hard for so many different people, but they'll dust themselves off and get on with it again. Everybody's just got to. Yeah, I think this is a really good point, Susanna, and you have this lovely attitude always of kind of, you know, keep keep moving on. And we were talking about this just before we started recording as well. And, you know, this may be the first time for us that we've gone through something like this. I think, consider myself quite lucky and quite blessed that the first 48 years of my life didn't involve my house being bombed or, do you know what I mean? I mean, you've, you've all like, you know, I didn't live in Aleppo. I have never, you know, been in the middle of somewhere which has had an epidemic of such grand proportions so far, or, you know, my country wasn't suddenly invaded one day. I feel very 
I, I, this is something that really helps me to keep things in perspective and not to be like, you know, blessed and blurry, not, not that kind of, you know, woo woo thing. I just mean in a very, very kind of, um, this isn't the first time this has ever happened. It's the first time it's ever happened to me. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are, you know, it's a really, it's a shipwreck of the pandemic across so oh, many different absolutely. economies. But like, for example, one statistic that struck me last week when I was looking through the Bank of England figures um, was the number of small businesses that have sprung up, the number of startups. So in the first week of December in the UK, there were 5,000 more startups this year than, than last year, just in one week. And, you know, there's 80,000 more businesses which have sprung up this year and obviously it's because so many people have lost their jobs but you know it just shows that there's such determination okay I've lost my job or I'm on furlough or you know I don't know what the future is going to hold I am going to take this opportunity and I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do and I'm going to start my own business and all those little kernels it's going to be tough some of them are going to fail but some of them won't and it will be the start of something new so you've got to there are people looking at this as an opportunity but it's very hard to keep chipper yeah. I mean it's really hard if you're isolated in a in a small flat on your own without any family and friends with no outdoor space um or you're cooped up with a family how are you how you know children and you're trying to homeschool them I know how hard it was in the summer trying to homeschool them I've got you know a decent sized house but I'm not in a flat and it's so difficult I just just my heart goes out to all those those people who, who are really really struggling I mean everyone struggled a little bit but some people really are struggling yeah, however really. you do think things will turn a corner you have to have hope and there are already people doing some amazing things there's another group called this mum runs in bristol that i've followed really closely because i interviewed the founder mel bound and she encourages mums just to get out running and just to feel better or any anybody really just get out join a running group join one of their groups and during the pandemic they were using these runs to distribute medicines to people in lockdown. So they'd run to the pharmacy, then they'd run to the house and deliver the medicine, and then they'd run on to someone else. So, you know, there's so many amazing um, initiatives happening through this. So you've just really got to focus on all the good stuff. Yeah, to keep your head above water, definitely. But I'm just struck by how much kind of both of us are kind of pinballing around. It's like, yes, amazing things. Oh, but then there are the... And Oh, you know, and I think it's it, it's also very important listening to both of us to to bear in mind all the different situations and all the different things that people are going through and to be as kind and supporting and as loving as possible, I suppose, is the, the bottom line, but also to... And it's quite tricky as well when you're working as an investment analyst, you know, you're <laughs> very much driven by what's happening, say, for example, with companies on the stock market and sometimes you feel, you know, you're just giving the headline rates and you're not then telling the stories of what it means for the employee. So particularly with the whole retail collapses yes. that we've yeah. seen, you know, it's so important that you just think, you know, you're not just reporting figures, you are reporting people's livelihoods. And you kind of have a responsibility to say, look, this is what's happening now, but these are the opportunities ahead. And you, so you, it's part of a, you have to look at the immediacy, but also the potential. The immediacy and, and the potential. That, let me just stop there. That's lovely. The immediacy and the potential. Okay. Yeah. And and how, so example, for example, how the high street at the moment, lots of shops are, are, look like they're going to be shuttered, but 
things will change. There will be an evolution. It's not a, it's not the death, it's an evolution and it will turn into something else, but we've just got to give it a bit of time. So just, you know, one example, but it is, it is, it is very tough and it's hard to see beyond the immediate horizon, but there's, um, you know, a huge amount of funding being put in, not just from governments, but from, from central banks. There's a lot of money washing around looking for somewhere to land. It will land eventually. And so we just kind of clinging on until the recovery comes. Do you have any, I have no idea, but do you have any kind of, do you have anything in your mind about how long that will be, Susanna, just out of interest? Obviously. Well, I think that um, once the vaccines are rolled out, you know, we're talking middle of next year, things are going to look a lot better. I think um, once, the most vulnerable groups in society are vaccinated and already here in the UK that is getting underway. So many, you know, hundreds per day and just the hospitals, one individual hospitals, you know, hundreds of thousands expected over the next uh, few months. So I do think that once those vulnerable groups have been vaccinated, that is definitely going to ease pressure. Then these lockdowns which are coming will also dampen down those infection spikes which will allow um, more sectors to reopen once again you know we're in the first you know few dark days of uh, yet more lockdowns and it's going to be really tough but there are vaccines being rolled out and we're looking like there's going to be another AstraZeneca uh, vaccine approved which will help um, so I do think that there will be significant recovery by the by the middle of next year I think the global travel industry is going to take a lot longer to recover because people will still be nervous and there was going to be different vaccine rollouts in different countries and so there is going to be a lot of confusion on that and that means that as well because there's different staggering of the rollouts that will have an impact on on global growth it's not going to rebound quite as quickly i don't think anybody foresaw that um the infection rates would spike quite so dramatically particularly here in the uk um and and in parts of the United States as well. But you know, the vaccines are coming, which is such a relief. And I think optimism will start washing back through again as we get in more into the new year. Love it. All right, oh, we need to bring it back to you, Susanna. I feel like we veered off into your professional life there. So I'm gonna bring it back to you now. So um, I also just want to mention the beautiful marriage of the RAF and France at your wedding. Um, which I was lucky enough to come to. You held, you held it at the lovely RAF. What was it called? The RAF Centre? The RAF Club. Yeah. The RAF Club. Right. In, um, and very sadly, the RAF Club, I just got an email this morning talking about how they'd opened up and now they've had to close again and cancel all the Christmas bookings. Aww. And it's such a beautiful building Gorgeous. overlooking Green Park. And um, it's got such history. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a plaque of uh, a crest of every squadron around the walls of the corridors and a lot of history about the Battle of Britain um, and it's such a great place to go and yes I, I had my wedding reception there and then the next day because I wanted to marry the RAF um, experience and my love of France we all then set off <laughs> uh, over to France to go and have another celebration in a little chateau um, in Normandy which was completely crazy so everybody was slightly worse for wear still um well the passengers were anyway and and trotted off around the m25 and um on the tunnel. through the tunnel yeah. down into normandy and we did it all over again complete with fireworks so that that really was 
That really was amazing, wasn't it? Apart from the fact that everybody hit a traffic jam around the N25, so we're late. <laughs> well, also, I was wildly sick and had to leave after the starters. And uh, I seem to remember you. Oh, gosh, to... yeah, you had the norovirus. Oh, viruses and traffic jams. We're right back there, right right now, aren't we? <laughs> I remember. <laughs> At least that was just hitting, you know, a few people. Yeah, and, and I remember you saying you turned around and I was sitting there and then you turned around again and I'd gone and there was just this big fish in my place. And it looked yeah, you'd like- asked for a vegetarian meal. Yes. And um, yes. yeah, it was, I don't think that part of Normandy quite cottoned on to what a vegetarian meal was. Oh, well, so yeah, you left and in your fine. place was a huge fish. <laughs> you <were> like, <laughs> it looked like you'd turn into a fish. I wish I had <laughs> so... Yeah. And that, that ended with the conga about 4am around the grounds. I'm so sad that I missed it all, but you can't, these, these things, you can't control them. But right? you were there in spirit the day before, so <laughs> I was eking it out a bit, my celebration, to be oh, fair. brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It was just like, that's what I love about us all. We're all, we all just kind of, I mean, you know, we just all, we all just get to get on with all these like wild ideas and we, we've lived a million different lives between us, haven't we, the birds? Yeah, and I do think... There's so much more to come. Oh, yes. You know, and I think when you get to, you know, your 40s and you realise there's another couple of decades, hopefully, you know, in front of us and there's oh God, yes. more to do. And we don't know where the next twist of our career may be in the future. So Absolutely I think not. it's, um, you need to kind of open up your mind to all the different possibilities. And I think we're feeling that across, right across our friendship group at the moment that there are you go like the careers go like that and peaks and troughs and I and you've just got to realize that there will be another peak again and um I think that I went through a stage of feeling as though I had you know reached a certain level and was pretty much stagnating and I loved the program that I was presenting on the world service but I'd been doing it for five or six years and I needed a new challenge and then you don't know where that challenge is going to come but when it comes you do have to seize it because it's not necessarily going to be around for long so um, I think, yeah, my challenge always is making sure I've got enough downtime. I very rarely sit down and just read the magazines and have a cup of tea. And I need to do more of that. I'll try and make that my New Year's resolution. But um, I've just got into, during the pandemic, cold water swimming. And I'm not that brave, but it is like eight degrees in the water and I've got a wetsuit. So Yesterday, I went off with my friend in our Santa hats and we had a good swim in the, in the, in the marine lake, which had just been filled up with seawater in uh, Clevedon. But next year, I'm determined to graduate to cold water swimming in a swimming costume because the women, men and women who do it are very, very hardy and it's exhilarating. This is massive in the UK at the moment. I follow a few accounts on um, Instagram about this because now I live by the sea. I like to go swimming, but I haven't been that brave yet to do that. I was swimming in the islands recently, but not, not. Oh, it's amazing. However, I do think what you need to do is you need to have a a neoprene hat, neoprene gloves and neoprene boots. Got it. And then you can go in a swimming costume because it's your you've got to make sure your extremities stay as warm as they can because that's when it can be dangerous. So if your extremities get cold, and you, your core can stay warmer, but then if your extremities get cold and then all that cold blood then rushes into your core, that's when you can have what's called the drop. And that can be really dangerous. You've got to make sure that you've got the right kit. I mean, it's like anything. No, it's never cold. You're just not wearing the, enough clothes. <laughs> 
So, um, however, I'm not brave enough yet. Next year, I will be brave enough to go in my swim costume with just those, those bits. But um, I think for now, I'm just going to keep going in my wetsuit. Amazing. Love it. So I, I just want to hear. So one question I have for you, which is maybe a bit out of left field, is I love your style. And we're going to kind of come in and, and land this a bit now. Well, of course, being on TV all the time and being on TV like almost every day, you had to kind of cycle your outfits around. What did you how how did you choose your outfit? Well, I very quickly realized I'm quite small and um, definitely realized that one color block is best. Uh -huh. And so I have a huge array of dresses that I've built up over the years um, to which really do suit any occasion. I mean, you know, it's easy. Just get a dress, which color, just get a dress. And yeah. so they're kind of that um, straight line dress, not necessarily always long sleeves, but, um, you know, cap sleeves, no strap sleeve, no straps. Uh -uh. Um, <laughs> long, like some kind of sleeve. Yeah. And some kind of um, quite fitted but straight form dress yeah. in a bright jewelry type color. That's that's definitely a kind of good option for me. But you do learn that over time to not, um, you know, wear things with prints that are too outrageous or colors. And then you get to know your colors. I did actually go and get my colors done once. And I did think, what is this? This is just so ridiculous. I know. I know what suits me. But actually it was really useful I think and so. I think that those um, and it kind of helps you eliminate um, just too much just too much uh, too many unwanted clothes in your in your wardrobe yeah, and, you can walk and I have for the first there. time color coded color coordinated my wardrobe so I open it and I can go blue dress blue dress pink dress <laughs> pink dress and and that actually really works when you're short of time love that and I think it also means that when you walk into a shop you can just walk straight past the stuff that doesn't suit you as yeah, well and don't buy anything that needs ironing why do people buy stuff that needs ironing I mean it's such a such a waste of time <laughs> I mean obviously after you've rolled up your um you know rolled up your clothes and put them in a suitcase and traveled around the world then they might need a little bit of an iron but generally if you you can buy dresses that you can just wash or dry clean and just hang up or just, I mean, and I really also do try and buy dresses that I can just wash rather than dry clean. Cause that's just another trip that you don't need. So it's all to do with minimizing effort. And your home as well. Your home is beautiful. It's got this gorgeous kind of shabby chic about it. What was the, do you have oh, I like that. There? I like the fact that you've got shabby, shabby, but chic. Yeah. yeah. I would say it's probably more shabby. <laughs> I don't think so. It's just so, it's so cosy, but also... Yeah, I mean, I do like, I do like, I've always loved antiques. And I don't know whether you remember, Sarah, one of the things I used to uh, jump out of bed for when we were at university was the rag market in Birmingham on a Saturday yes. morning. And I used to go there even with a hangover and search out the bargains. I've always loved antiques. I've always loved kind of retro, kind of a hint of retro clothing, retro yeah. clothing, retro anything retro, anything to do with, you know, Second World War, um, Art Deco, 1930s, 1940s. That really is kind of the era that I love. And I think in a way that that, that um, my love of history and that sparked my interest in the Royal Air Force and also then my kind of interest in, in design and, and clothing. I, I like the whole remembering what people did back then and what led us to to where we are today and I think I like to have that element of nostalgia 
throughout my life. So from nostalgia to the future, what are you looking forward to and what's next for you, Susanna? Well, do you know what? I really do try and not plan too far in advance because I think if you plan too far in advance, you then get disappointed. Love it. So like people say, I've got a five-year plan. I don't have a five-year plan. I have a vague things of what I might like to do. But if you set yourself a target, which is too tough, you're going to end up being disappointed. So I really want to... Um, really enjoy my job and learn as much as I can and be a really sought after commentator. And I'd like my, I'd like to do a lot of research into what's next for our companies here in the UK and overseas. And I'm really excited about doing that. Um, I want to travel once more. I mean, I've been doing lots of virtual conferences. I've still been hosting global conferences, but I really do miss particularly traveling to the Middle East and being immersed in that culture. And I want to do much more of that going forward. Um, once conferences restart again, hopefully near the end of next year. And um, yeah, I really look, I'm really looking forward to doing that. And I would also at some point like to pursue possibly politics at some point and being rather than analyzing political and economic events helping to formulate policy and um, direction of travel rather than being looking in, actually being somebody who is making, making the moves and making policy changes. But I think that's further down the line. I've got a lot to do yet. And I also really want to make sure that I get in quite a few more surfing weekends and swimming and enjoying the kids and traveling to France. So I don't want to take on too much at the moment I think just um enjoy what I've got for now oh, I love it I just got goosebumps then when you were like I might go into politics I'm like oh my god formulate policy I've written it down this is so exciting and I could totally see it happening as well well we'll see see when people tell me things uh you know as a coach when people tell me things I believe them when they tell me what they want. I don't believe in them. That's their business, but I believe them. Oh, you might go. I mean, there are very many different ways that you can do that. I mean, you can, you can um, obviously advise from the inside without being a politician. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, become a politician. I don't, I'll be honest. I really don't think that's on my immediate horizon. Like I said, I think it's good to have um, possibilities. That's yeah. the thing and not rule things out. Yeah. I think I would quite like to do that you know, and, and see, and see what happens. How has your first but, um, new job been? Have you enjoyed it? I've been really enjoying my new job. It has been very odd um, starting a new job mid pandemic without ever setting foot in the office. Wow. So I've met everybody on zoom and um, you know, you do lose a little bit of camaraderie. We had a few Christmas drinks on zoom, but I haven't met, I've, I've only met a handful of people in the flesh and it's a big company. So I'm really looking forward to being able to get back into the office and feeling, feeling part of a big company and really um, helping that company succeed. So I, I'm, I, I, I do think that working from home has huge benefits. It means that you can, you can juggle your home and, home and personal life a little bit better. But I do think that really for um, companies to succeed, you need that face-to-face -face contact within teams and I think that some kind of um, part-time working is the future. So um, ideally, it would be two to three days in the office, two to three days at home. Um, because I do think that 
homeworking means that you can really concentrate. You don't have, sometimes you really need to concentrate and you don't want your colleague coming to disrupt you. You don't, you just want to get your head down and you don't want to appear rude by saying, I'm sorry, I just don't have the time right now. You can do that when you're at home. But then you also need to make sure that you do make, you build up and you collaborate and you have ideas and you can push things forward. And also you can get on with people and then they'll help you out. And and you don't really get that unless you can be, I don't think in an office environment for at least some of the week. I think, I think it's okay temporarily, but I think working digitally forever, I don't think it's going to be good for all of us. But a good hybrid is is on the table now. A hybrid is perfect. No excuse now, is there? Um, Right. So is there anything you haven't said that you want to say or you'd like to, any little stories you want to tell or any, anything you haven't said that you'd like to say in this Legends? Anything? Um, (laughs) It's very tricky, isn't it? On this (laughs) I tell you what, one thing I have missed this year is that at the PTA, I'm involved in the PTA. <laughs> I've tried to extricate myself from it because I have a very broad spectrum of um, children, so 14 to six. So I've been there for quite a long time. But what I have really missed is organising the PTA parents Christmas party because every year I manage to do some kind of cabaret which involves dads dressing up as Spice Girls or doing a you know 42nd street oh you know some kind of can can and we haven't been able to do that because we did think about doing it on zoom and it just really wouldn't work so I'm really looking forward to the for the pandemic to end because I want to get back the 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 parents back on stage again to raise money for the school and see just how outrageous it can be and there we are finally what to add a bit of uh my husband's always saying can't believe you do that every year as well as everything else to organize at Christmas but there is something about bringing together a troop of people who are there just to have fun you know and there to have fun and raise money and it's it's a really special uh it's a special time and I've really missed that this year so I would really like to yeah get the little troop back on stage I, I agree with your husband because I look at the amount of stuff you do. Like you said, like you, you, you very rarely sit down with a magazine and a cup of tea. I've designed my life. So 50% of it consists of that. And I consider myself to be reasonably energetic. <laughs> I have to be. I know, and I do need like, to do. And, and uh, yeah, so I, that's why I won't join a, a drama group or a, um, because I can't give that commitment. But once a year, once on a special year, occasion, you think I, you can, I think I could do like it. it you know, you I can do it joy and energy and it energizes you and you love it yeah and you know and it really brings people together and so doing those kind of things are really important amazing and um I think it's rubbed off on my daughter who just keeps doing shows now it's like you know I really can see the generations repeating I know she's wanting to do shows outside the house and always organizing a party and she um recently we realised that she'd been giving out invitations in the playground, but not just to her friends, but to her brother's friends. When we got the brother's friends, parents all phoning up saying, well, we've got the invitation to the party, but we don't yet know what time it is. And Cecily, unbeknownst to me, had organised this party and invited not just her friends, but all the brother's friends as well. And I didn't even know anything about it. 
yes that's a legacy there Susanna that is a legacy that you started and is continued. I know and she's so she's a lovely wee ball of energy I was, it was so nice to come and stay at your house last year and she was so welcoming and friendly and you know straight in there and chatting away to me and asking questions and it was a real treasure a real treat to to meet her and hang out with her as well and uh, and of course you all call me Sigsy, right? So she she started calling me Sigsy as well. So the next generation, <laughs> nobody calls. Well, me I know Sarah. because I said this morning, I've got this interview with Sarah to do, and Paul's like, Sarah, 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 and then as soon as he saw, he was like, Sigsy. Yes. He, he didn't tell me it was. Sigsy. Oh, I know now why you were so desperate to get this done and get it up and running. I said, oh. yeah, it's not just any old Sarah. <laughs> it's a special one. <laughs> it's a special uh, Sarah. So I hope we'll come back and see us very soon. Well, you know, when I, well, it's very, um, yeah, I mean, it's especially uh, concerning for me when the travel will open up. And again, Susanna, I mean, I think that you and I have, I, I can't get myself wound up by it because if I did, I would live in a permanent state of just distress. And there's no point. There's just no point. Because... I think that everybody and me, I included last week, I was on a dip. Yeah, no, I was. This week, I'm not, and even, you know, you, you just have to, think what have I got I've got all of these things yeah we've just got to count our blessings and actually um social media and the way we interact and when I say social media I mean like gaming and everything as well it's the social interaction online it's been you know accused of a lot and there are huge problems you know as far as influence of elections and that kind of thing however for bringing communities together in times like this it's just brilliant you know there have been tweets from people who've been feeling so low and then everybody's piled in to cheer them up and you can see it works so it's just reach out isn't it it's just try and reach out and Brilliant. support people who you feel are a bit down and yeah exactly. zoom won't be a substitute but actually it still can be fun no, it's, good. it's good and these little interviews that I do here as well these these are brilliant for keeping me connected with people and then putting them out you know it, it's nice to to do these um so what's your philosophy then Susanna what do you think is the how would you kind of sum it up if you wanted to give people the kind of some inspo or a bit of I'd say set your sets start again shall I <laughs> you put one on the spot many ways to lead a life <laughs> I think you know that you're not going to get anywhere without a bit of drive and determination you don't have to set your set your sights too high but just take little baby steps yeah and try and achieve your dreams yeah along the way those dreams will change they might go out of reach but there'll be something else that will pop up that you think oh actually I really fancy doing that now and just go for it yeah but I also do think that you need to recognize when those opportunities arrive yeah. and capitalize on them there have been times in the past when I've thought why didn't I take that person up on that help? Yeah, me too. If people are reaching out, take it and make sure that you make the most of it. And every time I have succeeded, I think it's because somebody has put out their hand to help and I've taken it. Yeah. You know, whether it's from a French exchange and that hand of friendship or my first job in journalism through somebody I went to school with who said, come and, come and shadow me for the day or going to report on that story and thinking I'd like to do this how can I and somebody saying well go to that squadron and me picking up the phone and calling them 
you need to, there are little signs, I think, along the way, but you need to recognize them and follow them because otherwise they could just disappear and you're still left in limbo. And don't be afraid to, to follow your dreams though. And because I do think so much is achievable if you've got that drive and determination. Love it. And, and I think for both of us, we don't need to get into anything. I think we've both veered off once in a while or we've had knockbacks or kicks in the faces. And then just, I think recovery is quite a... Quite and a, you know what? Those kicks in the faces, they're really hard at the time, aren't they? And I've had quite a few in my career from yeah. various different stories that I've covered or opportunities that I've really wanted and haven't materialised. But I think you just, you know, you do literally dust yourself off and go, okay, it's going to take me a while. What's the next baby? I'll yeah. get there in the end and I will, I will just find a different way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember... I always thought I'd really love to to perform once again. And then somebody said, would you like to do, host a conference? And I could have said, oh, no, I'm really quite busy. I haven't got the time. And I said, all right, then I'll, I'll give it a go. And that has opened a whole new career for me. And I absolutely love it. I love getting on stage, getting people's opinions out, presenting big, big events. I mean, last year I presented the Our, Our Ocean event in Oslo, introduced the you know, the, the Prime Minister, John Kerry from the United States, and a whole host of, you know, really inspiring people. And I thought, gosh, if I hadn't taken that baby yeah. step to, to front that, 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 that conference for accountants two and a half years ago, I just wouldn't be here. Yeah. So you have to say yes. I yeah. think saying yes, saying yes to more things. So you seem to be really happy and really have this joie de vivre. Yeah, but, you know, I'm certainly not happy all the time. Nobody is. I mean, you get peaks and troughs and, you know, there are times when I feel sad and overwhelmed, like anybody does. But I suppose you just, I just think good night's sleep always does the trick. A good night's sleep, a laugh, and just that realisation that it doesn't really matter. I mean, ultimately, what, you know, most of what we do, it's not a question of life and death. It's, it could, you might do something wrong, but it's not a, a, it's not a huge disaster. It might be a small setback and you've got to, I think, recognising that then lowers anxiety levels and makes you think, okay, so I can do this. And it's not too big a drama. Um. I love that. And you know, one other thing that I want to say, and specifically I'm reminded by being with you, I mean, it seems like yesterday since we met, but like knowing people for 30 years and having really long friendships, I find something so dear to me. Just have the longevity of those friendships just feels so, it's so grounding and it's something I can always turn to when I need to. I think it's just- Oh, that's so true. I mean, absolutely. It's having that those people that you can call when you're just feeling low and I think surrounding yourself with those but also you know friendships take work you've got to give you've got to put into a friendship you can't just take no and if you put into a friendship over decades yeah and when you really need that support you you you've got a resource to draw on and people really want to help you yeah and also people want you to be honest you know you meet people and their life always seems fantastic and it just it's can't possibly be like that but if you share your experiences people open up to you and then when you need to open up to them they'll really be there for you so you've got to also be honest and say look it's it's not always 
it's not always look it doesn't look as good tv is not as glamorous as it looks you know global travel is not as glamorous as it looks you know i've got a beautiful family but it's really hard work sometimes and you have to be honest i think so too susanna and i just yeah i love that that these yeah these long friendships they mean a great deal to me and um yeah and it's just yeah it's not always how can i say it's not always love and light so <laughs> let's leave it there i adore you thank you for today thank you to granddad fletcher thank you to your mum and dad the amazing uh, parents who uh such good fun and to your family and i'm sorry that your poor son just uh bombed the, <laughs> bombed the thing there that was edited out but we'll just say you know you know it's <laughs> what happens on zoom <laughs> nothing goes to plan <laughs> susanna thank you so much adore you bye, bye. bye. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.